I've talked before about my foray into studying law and how it was very much largely unsuccessful, how it culminated with me being sued for defamation by one of my professors, and how for me the second best thing about being a Rhodes Scholar was that it stopped me from becoming an unhappy and deeply mediocre lawyer. One thing I don't mention often is that the thesis I wrote for my law degree was an attempt to combine my interest in literature with a perspective on law. So I wrote about the phenomenon of plain English. That's trying to write law without the legalese. And I tried to write about it through the lens of literary theories of language. I honestly did not understand what I was trying to do. And also nobody in law school understood what I was trying to do. So honestly, I think I passed just because it was easier to pass me than trying to explain why I'd failed. What I can see now, and this is with the benefit of hindsight and some self-esteem and some marketing speak, is that I was a boundary rider. Because I've come to learn that the interesting things often take places on the edges, those intermediate areas where X meets Y and some sort of new life is born. I'm Michael Bungay-Stenia. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Brian Christian is a boundary writer too. He's just way more successful and interesting than law school Michael. He thinks deeply and writes about deep patterns of life through technology and AI and algorithms. He's the author of The Most Human Human, The Alignment Problem, and the book that I read and kind of discovered him through called Algorithms to Live By. Now, after the introduction I just gave you, you're probably going to guess that Brian isn't just a science guy. And indeed, there's something else that I'll get to that makes his work so special. But before we go on, let's just learn what it means to be in a STEM high school. So I went to a STEM high school in New Jersey called High Technology High School. Um, <laughs> uh, we had no athletics programs. We only had robotics team, uh, chess team, and math team. Um, it was a it was an absolutely magical place. Sounds a bit like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, but you know, for magical science nerds. But actually, it wasn't the STEM side of things that started to build Brian's reputation. I was known for being very creative, you know, writing songs for book reports instead of doing a traditional book report. Or my friend and I did Moby Dick as a rap opera, you know, things like that. And I just thought, you know, I was having fun. But at my high school graduation, um, the school gave me the Excellence in English Award. They revealed I had won a statewide poetry competition. They sort of tongue-in-cheek, named me the Poet Laureate of High Technology High School. And so Brian suffered not an existential crisis, but an identity crisis early in life as he was leaving high school. Wait a minute. I've always thought of myself as a scientist who just happens to enjoy the arts and being creative. Um, but my teachers are kind of thinking of me almost the other way around um, as this creative person for whom science is, you know, the content, the subject matter. So what was he? A scientist or a creative? I mean, the answer, of course, is he was both. He's a boundary rider. And Brian brings an interdisciplinary mindset to everything he does. I asked him about the richness in the conversation between two disciplines, two disciplines such as poetry and science. There's, I mean, there's so many ways to come at this question. I love this question. Um, there 
was a quote. Um, I went to Brown University and there was a quote from Gertrude Stein that was literally chiseled into the side of the English department. And the quote said, and then there is using everything. <laughs> um, and I, I love this. And I think this is part of what it explains mm. my ultimate trajectory you know, into becoming a writer was that I felt that writing was a place where you can use everything, mm. um, that there was no kind of disciplinary uh, police, as it were, no sort of fences right. put up. Um, and in fact, the more you could sort of hop whatever fences there were, the better the writing would be. Um, mm. And so I think that's true, you know, both from a purely kind of literary and aesthetic standpoint. But I think many of the most important breakthroughs that happen, even in the hard sciences, come from a result of someone making a connection to an outside discipline. Mm. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, connecting two sort of charged plates, all of a sudden, you get this spark that jumps across. Yeah. And this entire body of knowledge that existed in an adjacent field comes rushing in. So I mean, one example of this, um, my freshman year at college, I took a neural networks course. Um, and this was in the 2000s, so they were nowhere near as cool as, as they are today. <laughs> they were considered kind of a dead end at the time, right. but I found them fascinating. Um, and we were talking about um, these mathematical models for how these networks can learn to store patterns and things like that. Mm. And our professor was talking about a time when he was at MIT, and they were scribbling all these things on the whiteboard trying to figure out how these networks can store associations, all these things. And they had all these equations up. And someone from the physics department happened to be walking by and just said casually, like, oh, you guys are working on the Ising model? And he said, the what? <laughs> Wait, okay, come in, hold on. Um, and it turned out that right. this set of mathematics that was developed for thinking about state changes um, mm. or sort of polarity and magnets, things like that, uh, ended up being exactly what they needed to explain uh, how these networks were working. Um, and that's exactly the kind of thing that really sort of, yeah. uh, you know, lights me up. You know, the, the idea that, and I think this is, again, like the, the frame of mind that we think of as a literary frame of mind, mm. of metaphor making. Um, oh, this neural network storing this association by, you know, flipping the, the signs of these artificial neurons is kind of like this right. magnetic substance getting sort of polarized in the pre presence of a magnetic field. Um, well, it's, it's more than just a metaphor. You know, the actual math... <laughs> can come across and, and be useful. And so I think that experiences like that started to show me that metaphor, you know, far from being this kind of literary frivolity or mm. this kind of purely recreational thing, um, this is one of the main mechanisms by which science happens. I think that really became clear to me. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the story, I, th I think it was Edison, I've heard this about, who was trying to solve some problem with a light bulb probably and um, found some papers in German that addressed the issue. He, his German wasn't that great, but he kind of muddled his way through the papers and kind of, and actually got the aha moment. He's like, oh, this is great. This is the thing that solves the thing that I'm, I'm wrestling with. Um, he then later got the pages, papers translated 
Mm. And he'd utterly misunderstood <laughs> everything that the paper was in there. Yeah. But there was still somehow, uh, I like your metaphor of the kind of electric plates where that kind of connective spark happens and, uh, and a connection is made that wasn't made before. Yeah. I mean, I think there are so many places that this happens in science. Um, it is a, a classic maneuver in theoretical computer science, this idea mm. called a reduction, where you basically show uh, that one problem can be reduced to another problem. You can right. completely express it as a version of another problem. And, uh, you know, there's a famous paper by Richard Karp from the, I think, 70s, where he shows, you know, here are 21 problems that are all basically equivalent to each other, even though they seem on the surface right. nothing alike. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, one of the main ways that theoretical computer science moves forward is someone says, oh, yeah, you know, this knapsack problem that's about how can yeah. you pack a bunch of objects into this thing. That's really equivalent to, you know, th three sat. You're this you know, like pure logic puzzle yeah. that we already know how to solve. Um, and those sorts of insights are kind of the building blocks of the field. So, yeah, that. and I think, you know, it's even yeah. more true when that happens across disciplines. So some of the coolest things that are happening right now in AI are uh, people who work in machine learning coming up against these problems of, you know, we, we can't get our agent to beat this Atari game. Mm -hmm. um, and the answers that turn out to unlock that particular problem are coming from phone calls that they have with their, uh, you know, developmental psychologists <laughs> that have these right. formal models for like how children play with blocks and things right. like that. And you put that math into a reinforcement learning agent, suddenly it can beat this game. Um, so yeah, I mean, we can, yeah, that's great. There are many examples geek out about this for a long time. I love that. Brian, tell me, I, I haven't heard that formal term of it's an, it's an equivalent or an equivalence to this, this problem is an equivalence to that problem. How do we, how do we discover equivalence? It just feels like such a potent way of seeing the world or, or exploring the world. Yeah, I don't know if I have a recipe for how to discover it. Um, but I think it's worth taking it more seriously than one might. Mm. Um, so thinking about some of my kind of early, the, the early beginnings of my work as a writer, I remember having had this conversation with my mother when I was 18 or 19. And she was talking about having moved from New Jersey to Delaware and how she missed the rabbits that used to be in our backyard and in Delaware, they weren't. Um, and we just had this conversation about, you know, how animals find their ecological niche and mm. maybe they would actually be happier in Delaware, but for some reason, you know, they never made it down there because maybe there's some region in between that is not very habitable. Right. And this got me thinking about local minima and things like that. Um, and I had been in a, a math class where we were talking about algorithms for getting out of local minima. So one of them is called simulated annealing, where you sort of inject a certain amount of randomness. Right. Um, and so it's just my mind and, wandering. And to inter interrupt, a local minima yeah. is something like a dead end of some sort? It's It's like everything is as good as it can be, but only in a kind of local way. Like, okay, understood. But if you kept going further, mm. um, you might get to some place that's even better. Okay, yep. Um, and 
you know, my mind was just wandering and I was thinking about these rabbits as, you know, <laughs> being on this error landscape. Um, but that was the, the connection that got me thinking about this idea in computer science called the explore exploit trade-off. Mm. Um, when do you try new things? When do you just kind of double down on what's working so far? Right. Um, and that ended up being the subject of my first essay that I published in like the college science magazine. Um, and then 13 years after that, that ended up being one of the major themes of uh, my second book, Algorithms to Live By. That's so good. That just That's... came out of a, a, this wonderful <laughs> conjunction that I was talking to my mom about rabbits when mm -hmm. I was taking this math class. Speaking of wonderful conjunctions, tell us about the book you've chosen to read for us. So I've chosen Godel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid by Douglas Hofstadter. That's great. Now, I've never heard of this book before, but that's because of my limited reading. And An Eternal Golden Braid is one of the best subtitles ever. <laughs> um, how did this come into your life? When did you discover it? So this book was given to me for my 19th birthday mm. um, by my high school sweetheart. Um, and at that point, we were not even together anymore. Um, and so I think you know, there's, there's some beautiful sub-theme there about, you know, right. don't, don't burn your bridges because <laughs> your exes, you know, may know you better than anyone else. And uh, if there's still goodwill there, there's room yeah. for them to change your life even after the relationship is mm -hmm. over. Um, and uh, yeah, this was, I, th I think it must have been her father who had read this, you know, back in the 80s or 90s. And right. somehow it came to me by way of her. And Escher being the artist, Bach, the musician, Godel, who I haven't heard of, but a, a mathematician, I think. Yeah, a logician, yeah. Yeah, great. Um, how, have you, how have you ended up picking two pages from that? It feels, actually, I read, I read about it. It's like, this is like Lewis Carroll trying to explain life. <laughs> so yeah, it I mean, it is, a, it, it is a long book. Um, it's almost 800 pages long. It goes into great depth about, you know, the history of classical music, the nature of DNA, uh, all sorts of arcane things and number theory. Um, and so, and every other chapter is alternated with these fanciful dialogues mm -hmm. between these different characters that find themselves <laughs> in all these whimsical situations. So it's an, an incredibly difficult book to kind of convey with a mm. two-page excerpt. Yeah. So that was yeah. a real challenge. And then I discovered that in the 20th anniversary edition, which is what I have, um, Hofstadter writes a preface where he talks about how difficult the book is to distill and summarize, and then goes <laughs> on to attempt to distill and summarize it. So I thought, okay, okay well, let's read that because that, that will at least great. convey something kind of at the meta level. Well, Brian, I'm very intrigued by this. So I'm excited to hear your two pages. Over to you. So what is this book, Godel Escherbach, An Eternal Golden Braid, usually known by its acronym GEB, really all about? That question has hounded me ever since I was scribbling its first drafts in pen, way back in 1973. Friends would inquire, of course, what I was so gripped by, but I was hard-pressed to explain it concisely. A few years later, in 1980, when GEB found itself for a while on the bestseller list of the New York Times, the obligatory one-sentence summary printed underneath the title said the following for several weeks running, quote, 
A scientist argues that reality is a system of interconnected grades, unquote. After I protested vehemently about this utter hogwash, they finally substituted something a little better, just barely accurate enough to keep me from howling again. Many people think the title tells it all, a book about a mathematician, an artist, and a musician. But the most casual look will show that these three individuals per se, august though they undeniably are, play but tiny roles in the book's content. There's no way the book is about those three people. Well then, how about describing GEB as, quote, a book that shows how math, art, and music are really all the same thing at their core, unquote. Again, this is a million miles off, and yet I've heard it over and over again, not only from non-readers, but also from readers, even very ardent readers of the book. And in bookstores, I have run across GEB, gracing the shelves of many diverse sections, including not only math, general science, philosophy, and cognitive science, which are all fine, but also religion, the occult, and God knows what else. Why is it so hard to figure out what this book is about? Certainly it's not just its length. No, it must be in part that GEB delves, and not just superficially, into so many motley topics. Fugues and canons, logic and truth, geometry, recursion, syntactic structures, the nature of meaning, Zen Buddhism, paradoxes, brain and mind, reductionism and holism, ant colonies, concepts and mental representations, translation, computers and their languages, DNA, proteins, the genetic code, artificial intelligence, creativity, consciousness, and free will, sometimes even art and music of all things, that many people find it impossible to locate the core focus. Needless to say, this widespread confusion has been quite frustrating to me over the years, since I felt sure I had spelled out my aims over and over in the text itself. Clearly, however, I didn't do it sufficiently often or sufficiently clearly. But since now I've got the chance to do it once more, and in a prominent spot in the book to boot, let me try one last time to say why I wrote this book, what it is about, and what its principal thesis is. In a word, GEB is a very personal attempt to say how it is that animate beings can come out of inanimate matter. What is a self, and how can a self come out of stuff that is as selfless as a stone or a puddle? What is an I, and why are such things found, at least so far, only in association with, as poet Russell Edson once wonderfully phrased it, quote, teetering bulbs of dread and dream, unquote. That is, only in association with certain kinds of gooey lumps encased in hard protective shells, mounted atop mobile pedestals that roam the world on pairs of slightly fuzzy, jointed stilts. GEB approaches these questions by slowly building up an analogy that likens inanimate molecules to meaningless symbols, and further likens selves, or eyes, or souls if you prefer, whatever it is that distinguishes animate from inanimate matter, to certain special swirly, twisty, vortex-like, and meaningful patterns that arise only in particular types of systems of meaningless symbols. It is these strange, twisty patterns that the book spends so much time on, because they are little known, little appreciated, counterintuitive, and filled with mystery. 
and for reasons that should not be too difficult to fathom, I call such strange, loopy patterns strange loops throughout the book. Although in later chapters I also use the phrase tangled hierarchies to describe basically the same idea. GEB was inspired by my long-held conviction that the strange loop notion holds the key to unraveling the mystery that we conscious beings call being or consciousness. I was first hit by this idea when as a teenager, I found myself obsessively pondering the quintessential strange loop that lies at the core of the proof of Kurt Gödel's famous incompleteness theorem in mathematical logic. A rather arcane place, one might well think, to stumble across the secret behind the nature of selves and souls and eyes, and yet I practically heard it screaming up at me from the pages of Nagel and Newman that this is what it was all about. This preface is not the time and place to go into details. Indeed, that's why the tome you're holding was written, so it would be a bit presumptuous of me to think I could outdo its author in just these few pages, but one thing has to be said straight off. The Godelian strange loop that arises in formal systems in mathematics, i.e. collections of rules for churning out an endless series of mathematical truths solely by mechanical symbol shunting without any regard to meanings or ideas hidden in the shapes being manipulated, is a loop that allows such a system to, quote, perceive itself, unquote, to talk about itself, to become self-aware. And in a sense, it would not be going too far to say that by virtue of having such a loop, a formal system acquires a self. What a fantastic, what a fantastic introduction. <laughs> and I have this new aspiration to join um, this author and maybe Stephen Hawking and have a New York Times bestseller that nobody actually seems to understand. That mm, feels yes. like a particularly <laughs> elusive but um, amazing goal to have. Um, you know, the, the kind of the idea of this kind of strange, twisty patterns. How did this, how did this book twist you into its pattern? Mm. I mean, quite simply, I had never seen anything like it. Mm. Um, it's one of those books for me that you read it and you think, I didn't, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was a thing that could be done. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that the book alternates these pretty detailed, you know, lectures on number theory with these very spirited, you know, as you say, in the, in the spirit of Lewis Carroll, these like extremely wordplay filled um, dialogues that sort of mm. romp through these various fictional scenarios. And in fact, um, a footnote, but one of these whimsical dialogues ended up essentially becoming the movie Inception. Oh, <laughs> um, so yeah. Little known fact: Inception is <laughs> is basically a feature length version of oh, one of these little uh, <laughs> dialogues from Go to Lunch or Bob. That's great. Um, and so I think partly as a aspiring writer, but also just mm. as as a reader, um, I was astounded that such a book was like allowed to exist by you know yeah. the, the world of publishing, or that it would even occur to someone to do that. And so for me, I, that was a pretty sublime experience of just being like, oh, what the, the level of ambition, the level of sort of, mm. um, you know, genre switching within this thing, um, 
you know, he was he was sort of breaking rules that I had not even fully realized were <laughs> rules to begin with. Um, yeah. So that was exhilarating. Well, what did it give you permission to do? I think it it gave permission to play a little bit fast and loose with genre, mm-hmm. um, and to make something where you're like, I don't is is this a screenplay? Is this a, a right. you know academic talk? Like where what's happening? Um, and I think that's um, that's something that I've had in the back of my mind, even as some of the work that I've done has been you know more conventional nonfiction. Um, having a license uh, to kind of dip into other genres is helpful. Is there um, a story about a rule or rules that you've been particularly delighted to break? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I went to graduate school for creative writing. I don't know mm. if this is the best ex- example, but uh, this is an example. Um, I ended up publishing this piece that's called Our Lot. Um, and it is a, it's basically a short story about, uh, a megalomaniacal parking lot operator <laughs> or parking lot designer, um, who has this kind of weird manifest destiny will to power thing of like wanting mm. to create the biggest parking lot, you know, of all time. Um, and the parking lot gets so big that he has to basically like recapitulate the infrastructure of the city within it. Like it's so big right. that to get across it, you need like a hotel where you could stay for the night and a right. restaurant. And he just sort it of becomes a kind of fractal expression of an entire city within the parking lot. Yeah. And in effect, you end up where you started, where he's just, he's raised the city and then rebuilt the city you right. know, back on top of itself. Um, but the, the form of this um, story is exclusively in quotations from other sources. Oh, that's great. And so the entire <laughs> thing is made out of a, a chain of quotations of other mm. people. Um, and this form is sometimes known as a cento uh, right. in poetry. But I, I remember with some real delight going to the architecture and urban planning library at the University of Washington and saying, you know, I'm going to need every book that you have about parking. <laughs> and they said, okay, what is, are, are you an architect or what? And I said, no, this is for a poem. That's fantastic. Um, and just the, the visible confusion on the librarian's face. <laughs> you know, um, uh, you must have stumbled across Italo Covino's writing in your oh, time. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you, your story is reminding me of some of his wonderful work. Um, it's also reminding me of, failing a high school science thing where I submitted my science report because I was like, we're writing up exactly, it's 40 of us, we're writing up exactly the same basic experiment. Mm. How could you possibly do this in a way that differs an A from a B to a C? They're all, they're going to be the same. Mm. So pre-internet days, I I did an entire report drawn from a literary quotations dictionary. (laughs) <laughs> it took me like oh, that's wonderful. it took me 12 hours to complete this you know 400 word report and i got a c minus for it and i was like okay that that was fun but it didn't it may not have got the the outcome that i was going for but no matter the the, the uh, genre police crack yeah, down the genre police is cracked down yeah yeah um brian how what pulls you to artificial intelligence hmm 
this is an obsession that goes back pretty much all the way for me. I mean, in mm. college, I was a double major in computer science and philosophy, and I did the artificial intelligence track within the computer science degree and the philosophy of mind track within the philosophy degree, um, hoping that the two would kind of meet in the middle somewhere. Mm. Um, ironically, the only place where those two degrees explicitly touched was formal logic. So I actually ended up taking a formal logic class in both departments because neither respected the other's <laughs> version of the class, even though they were basically identical. Um, so I got a heavy dose of, of uh, formal logic, uh, including Kurt Gödel. Um, but I think for me, I have this, I have this deep conviction. Um, you'll sometimes hear people say, uh, you know, in the 21st century, we use computers as a metaphor for brains or for mm. mind or, you know, cognition. And this is no different to the way that in the past, uh, you know, people in the early 20th century used, you know, pneumatic tubes as uh, a metaphor. Or in the middle right. 20th century, they used sort of electricity and wiring and, mm. uh, you know, before that, they used gears and, you know. And whatever the cutting edge technology is becomes the metaphor to describe what complexity is. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a skeptical position that says AI is, is just the latest in a series of kind of bullshit metaphors <laughs> for the mind that aren't going to reveal anything. The same way that, like, you know, if someone goes on a, you know, rampage, we might say that they've blown a fuse but like mm. electrical engineering doesn't tell us anything about the brain um i so i'm setting this position up because i don't agree um i i i'm willing to be proven wrong but i genuinely think that we are sort of on to some philosophical pay dirt here mm -hmm. um i think there is a there is a very real way in which we are building these systems in our own image and as a result they come to be a kind of uh mirror for ourselves in a way that's genuinely revelatory mm. um not just interesting but right. this is how we're going to sort of figure out what what the nature of mind is i think it's very telling in my view that <clears throat> really one of the first ideas that anyone ever had in AI was the idea of artificial neural networks. This idea comes from the 1940s, like 1942, 43. It predates the first stored program computer. It predates, you know, the Dartmouth conference that's considered to begin right. the you know field of AI by a decade. Um, and okay, it wasn't until I would argue 2012 that this idea was fully kind of vindicated. Yeah, but the fact that the dominant paradigm in AI at this point was A, the first idea anyone had, and B, the most kind of directly biologically inspired idea that anyone had. I think that's extremely telling. Um, and I can give you other examples. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, there was this idea in... Uh, a subfield of AI called reinforcement learning, which is about how do you learn from punishments and rewards. Yep. And there's a particular approach to this that's called temporal difference learning mm -hmm. uh, that basically says, 
you can learn from changes in your prediction of some future thing before that thing even happens. So if today I think that next weekend will be sunny, but then tomorrow I think actually it's going to rain, I can sort of retroactively update Mm -hmm. saying that yesterday I probably should have thought what I think today. Right. Because today's prediction is probably more accurate, even though we don't yet know the final outcome. So this is called temporal difference learning or TD learning. Right, right. Uh, The math of this was being worked out um, by a bunch of people in the AI community in in Cambridge. And then in the 90s, one of them, Peter Dayan by name, goes to the Salk Institute uh, and is working with a bunch of neuroscientists. And they are hung up on the question of what what in the hell does the dopamine system do? We had all this great data from the 80s and 90s on the individual behavior of dopamine neurons, they seem to kind of correlate to reward, you know, like a monkey would have this dopamine spike when the monkey discovers some food, but then you repeat the study again and again, and the dopamine goes away. So, okay, Mm -hmm. it's not exactly reward. It's not exactly surprise, but it's clearly connected to those things. So what's going on? It was this huge riddle. Mm. The, uh, you know, the AI community, Peter Dayan took took one look at this data and basically said, oh, that's temporal difference learning. Right. Um, A diminishing return on something as you get closer to the the future prediction of what that is. Yeah, it doesn't reflect how good the situation is, but rather whether the situation is more or less promising than you thought it was going to be. Oh, right. Um, And so... I tell this story, it's one of my favorite anecdotes within, you know, recent AI history. For me, this underscores this conviction of we really are onto something in terms Mm. of AI as uh, revealing the mechanisms of the mind. Mm. Um, We are independently rediscovering some of the same fundamental mechanisms that evolution found time and again. There are many kind of parallel convergent evolutions of uh, this kind of TD learning system in various uh, branches of, you know, the animal yeah. kingdom. And we're, we're finding that this, indeed those are the same solutions that work in AI. So this is just a very deep conviction of mine that we're really onto something. I want to, I want to ask you in a moment, what your, what you, what you guess will be revealed. But before I ask that question, um, I want to ask you this. What are you surprised that someone like me, who has the lightest of tentative grass on, on this world, doesn't yet know about what AI is or can be? I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much has changed in AI in the last three or four years, mm. um, particularly with the rise of what are called large language models. So if some listeners will be familiar, others won't, you know, things like GPT-3 or GitHub Copilot or Google's Lambda or, you know, there's a number of ones now. But um, we've seen the rise of a particular architecture, which is called the transformer. Um, and 
this has enabled what you could think of as autocomplete on like on steroids, <laughs> like nuclear powered right. autocomplete. Um, and at first you might think, well, okay, you know, I use this thing whenever I'm typing a text message, it suggests some words at the bottom. Yeah. And okay, maybe it's no surprise that with the latest advances in X, Y, and Z, those suggestions are getting better. Yeah. But what's the what's the fundamental power of you know nuclear powered uh, autocomplete? Well, it turns out that you can quote unquote autocomplete um, this insanely broad range of tasks. So, for example, you can say. The following is a five-paragraph essay that won the national competition on, you know, concrete steps we can take to fight climate change, mm. colon, enter, <laughs> and it will, quote-unquote, autocomplete, like, a coherent five-paragraph <laughs> essay on that subject. I mean, mm, that is extraordinary. completely insane. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Um, you can do the same thing with computer code. You can say, yeah. like, you know... The following function will transform a set of matrices, blah, 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 or whatever. Right. Colon, enter, and then it'll start writing Python code that you can actually run. Um, and so I think, yeah, the the power of turbocharged <laughs> autocomplete right. is being totally underestimated right now by many people. The following wow. is a delicious three-course meal that I'm preparing for my wife, colon. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. Come on, kitchen, step up. Um, this may be an impossible question, um, but knowing that th that AI is has revelatory power that is is yet to be seen or understood, and it is revealing us to ourselves in a mm. way that we may never have seen before. What do you think is soon to be discovered? I think. One of the things that I've been thinking about from the past 10 years, and then I'll sort of think about the next 10, in in just the past 10 or 15 years, let's say, I speaking personally, I have gained a tremendous sense of respect and kinship with the animal kingdom. Mm. So there's this 2,500-year-old question in Western philosophy of like, what what makes humans special? What sets us apart? What makes us unique? And, um, you know, for, for philosophers of a particular religious persuasion, why do we have souls and no one else does? And why yeah. are we, like, allowed to kill animals as much as we want or whatever? That their ideology at the time. Um, and, yeah, the answer that you get about human uniqueness, all the way from basically Aristotle through Descartes, etc., is let's just subtract away all the things animals can do and see what we're left with. Right. They can have social relationships. They can have, you know, some version of communication. They have Kings locomotion. Tools. Yeah, yeah. But they can't think rationally and abstractly. And so, mm. you know, conveniently enough, these <laughs> analytic philosophers decide that analytic <laughs> philosophy is like the, you know, heart of the human, yeah. you know, experience. I think that the last 10 years have completely obliterated that argument because mm. if you look at what has proven to be sophisticated or unsophisticated from the perspective of AI, it's exactly the things that we've written off, mm. right? In the 90s, we had a computer program that could beat the world chess champion. Yeah. But we're still sort of figuring out 
how to stay upright on two legs. Right. Um, that turns out you need, you know, a million X as powerful a computer and, you know, 20 years more research to do that. So it is exactly the things that we've taken for granted and exactly the things that mm. we share with the animal kingdom, where a lot of the cognitive and computational sophistication is taking place. So uh, oddly enough, the progress of AI has made me like increasingly vegetarian, right? So that's, um, that's sort of an unexpected connection. That's I think fantastic. Yeah. looking ahead, um, what's coming down the, the highway in the next 10 to 20 years, I think there's a, there's a serious conversation about consciousness and sentience. I mean, right now, uh, AI Twitter has been bubbling over for the last several weeks with different camps of people throwing shade at each other about, of course, AI can be conscious. Of course, AI can't be conscious, et cetera. Um, and so the Overton window on that has really moved in terms mm. of like, this is an actual polarizing, you know, topic. This is not just uh, an orthodoxy. Yeah, and so yeah. I think one way or other, we are going to be forced into a confrontation where either we're going to learn something about what makes consciousness and sentience and likely we're going to be able to disentangle some of the words that we use as approximate synonyms and realize that they're actually quite different yes. uh, and distinct. Um, and we're probably also going to have to admit that we don't really know uh, a lot of things that we act like we do know. Mm. So, you know, this has existed for a long time in philosophy as like a hard problem of consciousness and various things like that. Um, but I think... A, an actual reckoning, like an actual practical reckoning with that, where we have to make decisions or maybe even legal uh, yeah. decisions on what the rules are of what, you know, what systems have, what sorts of rights and, and which don't. I think that's, that grappling is coming. No, you're reminding me of um, a recent guest. Um, his name I can't quite remember, but he founded, the, he, he coined the term the Internet of Things. Yeah. And uh, he, the book he read from was The Mother Tree, which is a biologist conversation around, look, how the biology and trees and that ecosystem is connected and conscious in a way that we barely have recognized, but we're beginning mm. to see it for the first time. Yeah. And again, it's a shift from being human-centered in terms of how we understand that to being other centered and and the ripples that's going to create are, are possibly extraordinary um brian this has been a, a wonderful conversation um a final question is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between us i mean no but also you know we could continue this conversation for hours um <laughs> yeah, so you know just one thing that's sort true, of yeah. left over in my mind is i think one of the one of the premises of my work, this is kind of explicitly stated in Algorithms to Live By, but it's mm. in, in a lot of my thinking and my writing, um, is in a way, uh, humans are not so special. Mm. You know, again, this undercuts, you, you know, millennia of Western philosophy of trying to stake this claim that we are yeah. the only species that X. I don't know why we feel so hung up on, you know, making that argument in the first place, but 
from my perspective, A, yeah, we share a lot with the animal kingdom, maybe more than uh, was previously uh, accepted. But I think the same is true for computational systems. So the types of problems that people confront in everyday life um, have an underlying mathematical structure to them. Mm. Uh, scheduling your time, ha- you know, falls into a certain class of problems, or um, you know, sorting your bookshelf falls into a well-known set of math problems. But right. even things like deciding where to go out to eat, do you try the new restaurant or do you go to your favorite restaurant? You know, we alluded to this earlier as a, yeah. an example of the explore exploit trade-off. Um, there is this very deep mathematical structure underneath what we think of as kind of intrinsically or uniquely human problems. And I don't, I don't think they are uniquely or intrinsically human problems, which gives us both the ability to turn to mm. math, operations, research, machine learning, et cetera, for you know, actual ideas about what, where to go out to dinner. Um, but more broadly, I think gives us a sense that uh, you know, we're, we're sort of weirdly all in this together. Um, and that includes the animal kingdom, that includes uh, you know, computers. Um, and for me, yeah, I think there's just um, there's more to be learned across those uh, you know, ostensible gaps than than we might appreciate. And you know, we would do well to look look to those adjacent spaces because I think there's a lot of wisdom there. There are a lot of things I could muse on based on this conversation because I, I love people with brains like Brian's. Well, you know, I'm going to pick up on one of his throwaway lines. It's the fact that it was his ex-high school sweetheart who gave him the book. Not ex as in they're no longer together now, Brian's a grown adult, but ex as in they weren't together when she gave him the book. If we go back to the beginning of the conversation, you'll remember the Gertrude Stein quote, and then they're using everything. And I, I want to bring them together. This feels like an interdisciplinary moment because what I'm thinking about is, so what are the gifts I've been given by people who are no longer in my life? People from whom I've gradually drifted, people from whom I've been cast away or rent asunder, people who have just departed for one reason or another, forever. And when I think of those gifts, am I using them fully? If you enjoyed my conversation with Brian, I'm sure you did. Um, A couple of other interviews from two pages with MBS that I can recommend. Um, Check out Kevin Ashton, relatively new. Um, And Kevin is the coiner of the term, the Internet of Things. And we had an amazing conversation about his book, which is about this idea of the mother tree. So I definitely check out Kevin's conversation. And then with Tom Vanderbilt, that conversation is called How to Be a Beginner. And absolutely terrific, all about how do you keep having the hunger to learn more. And of course, you'll probably want more about Brian, and you can find more about Brian at Brian Christian. That's with an A at the end, dot org. So Brian, B-R-I-A-N-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N dot org. Links are in the notes, of course. Um, thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for passing the word along. 
And actually, you'll notice in the, the notes now, we've got something called pod.link slash two pages. And I've discovered that this is the best way to refer people to the podcast because when you send them the link, actually what happens is they have an option to sign up to whatever platform they normally use to listen to their podcasts. So, you know, you don't send them the Apple podcast and they're like, oh yeah, but I use Stitcher or whatever else. So it's awkward. This just makes it super easy. So if you're in the mood to recommend this episode to one or two or three people who need to know about this podcast, then pod.link slash two pages, which is in the show notes, is the best way to do it. Thanks for reviews. If you've left a review, I, I know it's a It's not easy necessarily to leave a review, but it just is one of those social things that tells people this is a podcast worth listening to and makes it easier for people to find. You're awesome. You're doing great.